0: Revelation, uh, chapter 2. We put more sheets out there in the back in case you didn't get a sheet. Last week we started our study here of the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, we only got through Ephesus and Smyrna. And so hopefully tonight we'll be able to uh, get through a few more of them and uh, make sure that we get everything covered here. Uh, just a quick reminder, uh, Dustin, if you want to put up that first slide because he's getting the slides up there. Uh, real quick, I was just reminded, uh, part of the ministry that we do out here at VBS during the summer is we had those wonderful kids come out. We're so thankful for those kids. But one of the things that we'd like to do as a follow-up to them is we like to send each child that came out here to VBS a personal postcard from their teacher that served at VBS with them just to remind them that we are thankful that they are come, to remind them that God loves them. So leaders, if you are a leader during VBS and you got your postcards and you have not returned them back in, we need to have those turned back in so we can send those out. So if you have not got your postcards turned back in, please turn those back in so we can get those sent out. Now, these are the same slides here from last week. Just a quick reminder, this is the outline of the book of Revelation from Revelation 1.19. Write the things which you have seen, chapter 1. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, which we're talking about tonight. And the things which will take place after this, chapters 4 through 22. Remember chapters 2 through 3. These are seven letters sent to seven different churches. Next uh, slide, please. These seven churches here, you can see where Patmos is, circled right there. Patmos was the island that John was banished to by the Romans, and this is where he received the vision from the Lord. And the last slide real quick. And you can see these are the seven churches there in present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and these are where these uh, letters are going. So these letters, once again, represent a few different things. These are seven actual churches. During John's time, they were having seven actual problems, that are being dealt with. They also are applicable to us. I believe as you go through these seven letters, you will probably find the church in these seven letters. Each church, and I mean each unique fellowship, probably has some of these same problems, and you can look through these churches and say, yeah. That looks like the church I go to sometimes. Oh, yeah, that looks like the church I used to go to. These are real problems that they dealt with 2,000 years ago, and they're also real problems that we are still dealing with today. One last thing about this, and we're not getting into a lot of detail about this, but you can actually start with Ephesus and work your way all the way through Laodicea. And some people have done a really neat study that through the church, you can see different areas of time over these last 2,000 years. You can see how the church started out, as it says there in chapter 2, looked good, but on the inside was already losing its first love from Christ. Then you can look how it was persecuted, and the next there was Smyrna, and then you can jump all the way to the end to Laodicea, where the church has become very, very lukewarm, which we are in today. So we kind of hit that a little bit. So just some introduction there, some reminder of what we went through last week. So we left off last week at the church of Pergamos there. Pergamos, which is found in uh, verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2, and it says, "Into the angel, of the church in Pergamos, write." Real quick reminder that word "angel" could literally be an actual angel of each church, but that word also is translated "messenger" in the Bible, so it could actually be referring to the leadership of the church, of the messenger there, the one that is leading the church, spreading the mes- message of Christ. We're going to go and read the rest of verse 12 through 17, then we'll come back and pick at this then. It says, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, let's talk about Pergamos here a little bit. Now, I, I find this kind of interesting. First off, look at the description here. Look at the example that it's talked about when it comes to Christ. Christ is talked right here in verse 12 as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's obviously a reference to the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is like a double-edged sword. So when you see a little bit later on here in Revelation where it talks about Jesus returning with the with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, I don't literally think there is a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I think what it literally refers to is the word of God that he's speaking and the power of that. Now, I cannot stress this to you enough. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 138.2. Psalm 138.2, where it says that God honors his word above his name. Think about that for a second. Psalm 138.2, God honors his word above his name. Think of the power of the name of God. One quick example of that was they were in the garden and the Romans came to uh, arrest Jesus and take him to the cross. They asked, Who are you? Jesus said, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And when he said, I am, what happened to all the guards? They got knocked down. That's the power of the name of God. See, by Jesus saying, I am, he was claiming deity. Because when Moses asked the burning bush, who should I say is sending me, what was the response? I am that I am, which means the all-becoming one. So when Jesus claimed to be I am, everybody else got knocked down. That's the power of the name of God. Well, God is saying in Psalm 138, too, that my word is even more honored than my name. That's a big deal. And you wonder why we nag and nag at you about being in God's word. Because if God says Himself how important my word is, that's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal here. So you see the sword, that weapon. See, too often as Christians we're on the defensive, God says we're out there to attack. And not attack to harm, but attack to speak the truth. And we do that by using God's word. Well, and if you remember, as we go through these churches, generally every church we go through has a praise, a rebuke, and then a correction and a reward. So the praise given to the church of Pergamos is they're faithful. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name. They're in the midst of Satan's throne, in the midst of immortality, excuse me, immorality and sin, and and they're holding fast to God. Now, real quick, and please don't answer out loud. Do some of you work where Satan's throne is? <laughs> Are some of you have a house where you feel like you're married to somebody <laughs> where Satan's throne is? How many of us have a place where we feel like I am sitting smack dab in the middle of Satan's throne. Every day when I go to work, I'm clocking into Satan's throne room. Well, the church at Pergamos, you can relate to. These people were literally there, and they're saying, God's saying, hold fast, hold fast. Well, how much longer can I hold on? I hear this all the time. How much longer should I stay in this relationship? How much longer should I stay at this workplace? How much longer should I stay there? I always tell people, until the Lord tells you to go, you stay. Yeah, but you know how difficult it is? Well, verse 13, it was more so difficult that Antipas was martyred. I don't think you're going to get martyred at work tomorrow. I sure hope not. But the point of it is, it's tough. It's tough sometimes. One of my favorite verses in Hebrews, it really convicts me, it says, you have not resisted to the point of bloodshed. realize how many times we say, oh, this is so difficult, I can't handle it anymore. It's like, oh, we can handle it through the strength of the Lord. Now, if God says go, go, I'm going to make sure that's abundantly clear. But what God is writing in the church of Pergamos here is you are where Satan's throne is. And you know what? That's right where I want you, right where Satan dwells. Look at that. Then to verse 13, where Satan dwells. I want you right there. And God says, I will give you the strength to get through that. What a neat example of God putting us where we need to be, not necessarily where we want to be, but where we need to be to do the most for the kingdom. But, verse 14, the rebuke, they're holding the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Balaam's quite a guy. If you want a little study on your own, I encourage you tonight, write this down. Numbers 22 through 25, Numbers 22 through 25, it's about Balaam. Real quick insight into Balaam. Balaam was a guy that was hired by Balak to go curse Israel. He was basically a prophet for hire. And so what happens is Balak comes and says, look, Israel is getting too strong, getting too powerful. We want you to come curse Israel. So could you please come say something bad about Israel? Because obviously your prophet, whatever you say, is going to come true. So we're going to pay you money to curse Israel. So you guys know what happens. Balak hires Balaam to do this. Balaam opens his mouth. He tries to curse Israel. And what does he keep doing? He keeps blessing Israel. Well, so this happens the first time. Balak's like, okay, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But he hires him again. Well, next thing you know, Israel gets blessed again. Well, he tries to get him a third time, and by this time, Balaam's donkey steps in, which is a whole story within itself in Numbers 22 through 25. And Balaam basically can't curse Israel. See, this is the problem. We think the story ends right there, but it doesn't. Because Balaam is a smart guy, but not a smart guy in a good way. See, what happens is since he couldn't curse Israel by his words, he goes to Balak, and we can piece this together here by looking at verse 14 and also in the book of Numbers. Balaam says, hey, listen, I can't bring Israel down by my worth, but I got an idea that will bring Israel down. You know what the idea is? You take your pretty Moabite women, and you have them come into Israel and have your little pretty Moabite women marry the Jewish men. So then what happens is your Jewish men will then make compromises. They will then become lukewarm in their faith towards God and idolatry will come in through these Moabite women and you will destroy Israel, not through my words, but through your actions of the Moabite women coming in. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. And so these Moabite women came in and they started committing sexual idolatry there and they started sacrificing to idols in verse 14 and Israel started getting knocked down by this. So what you have here in verse 14 is you talk about the doctrine of Balaam. Well, this is kind of interesting if you want to take these notes and look at this. Balaam is mentioned three times in the New Testament. For such a minor character in the Old Testament, for him to have three mentions in the New Testament is kind of a big deal. You have here in Revelation 2, 14, the doctrine of Balaam. And 2 Peter 2.15 2 Peter 2.15 you have the way of Balaam and then in Jude verse 11 Jude verse 11 you have the error of Balaam. Now put this all together. You have the doctrine of Balaam you have the way of Balaam and you have the error of Balaam. What's the doctrine of Balaam? The doctrine of Balaam is sexual morality, idols. That was his doctrine. That's what he taught. That's what he said to do. My goodness, is that not rampant today? Isn't it sexual morality all over the place? The doctrine of Balaam is live and well right now today. Now Idols? Well, we don't have idols, right? We don't have little statues sitting on our, on our um, shelves that we bow down to. Of course not. But we have other idols. We have the idol of work for money. We have the idol of leisure for fun. We have the idol of fill-in-the-blank of selfishness. We have plenty of idols that we worship down to today. They're just not in the form of statues. So the doctrine of Balaam is alive and active. What's the way of Balaam? The way of Balaam is I'm willing to compromise my faith for something that I want. What's the error of Balaam? Well, I'm willing to compromise my faith for money. Put this all together. Balaam was willing to give up his faith, his, his prophet, relationship with God, for money and to bring people down. That is still around today. My goodness, you wonder why the world has such a negative picture of Christianity is because we are willing to compromise and have the error of Balaam for profit and for money, and we have sexual morality. You know, we used, we used to think the church was different. Boy, it seems like there's as much sexual immorality in the church as there is outside the church. That's a sad, sad place. That's the doctrine of Balaam. That's the church of Pergamos that's going on right now. What are they supposed to do? Well, the response is what? Uh, Verse 16, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of my mouth, once again, is God's word. How are we supposed to repent? God's word. How simple is that? So often, and I've used this example before, people come into my office and they have a really difficult situation. Pastor, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What do you think you should do? Nine times out of ten, they already know what they should do. They just don't want to do it. The answer is simple. The follow through is hard. Well, God's Word tells us what we want to do. I'm willing to bet that right now, very few of you are really sitting there struggling. I don't know what's right or wrong. You know what's right. The Holy Spirit's telling you what's right. We just don't want to do what's right. Church of Pergamos, they knew what they were supposed to do. Repent. How simple is that? Repent. Give up those things that are hurting you. Give up those things that are causing problems. And therefore, go forward in God. Born again. Fresh start. What's their reward? Verse 17. Hidden manna? Well, who's the hidden manna? Well, from John chapter 6, we know it's Jesus. Jesus actually came out in John chapter 6 and said, when your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, they were actually eating of me. Jesus says, I'm the manna. I'm the bread of life. I'm all you need. And what's the next one here? The hidden stone, excuse me, the white stone with a new name written on it. White represents acquittal. Back during Bible times, if you got the white stone, that means you were acquitted. Or white stone also meant victory. If you got the white stone, that shows that you were the champion. You won. So by us getting a white stone, it means that we have been acquitted of our sins, we're set free through Christ, and we also are now victorious. That's why we sing victory in Jesus. And to cap it all off, we get a new name. And I like the new name. And on the stone, a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Is that kind of cool? The whole new name thing? I like the new name. You know, uh... One of the fun things that Dawn and I always get to do is when we have a kid, you get to pick out the name. You either get to bless this person for the rest of her life or curse this person for the rest of her life with this name. What a powerful thing. And so this name shows what? What's this behind? It just shows possession. It shows ownership. I've shared this story with you numerous times. The last dog that we got was named Maddox. That's not the name he was. We got him from the pound. When we got him from the pound, his name was Chance. And so what happened was we brought him home and we basically said, your name's no longer Chance, we're calling you Maddox now ours it took him a while to learn that but that was us we now have ownership we're now claiming him we changed his name well this is what it's saying here when god says i'm giving you a new name he says you're mine this is not some selfish jealousy thing he says you're mine i get to bring you home i get to take you home you are mine and so you have the white stone of victory the white stone of acquittal you have the hidden man of christ and now possession you are now mine what a blessing that is so the church at pergamos the church of Pergamos was dwelling where Satan dwells, shows faithfulness in a spiritual attack, but it also shows allowing that doctrine of Balaam, that sexual immorality, that greed that creeps into the church and that needs to be taken care of with, repented in God's word, and they're blessed with the hidden man of Christ, the white stone of victory of acquittal, and the new name that Jesus gives them to show a new relationship in Christ. Anybody have any quick questions, comments here about the church of Pergamos? Yeah, Marcus. Where's that what verse are you looking at? Oh, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You're talking about the actual physical city of there, Pergamos. Yeah, um, let me think here for a quick second on Pergamos because I start to get all these churches confused after a while. If I remember correctly, with Pergamos, Pergamos actually had a. Um, help me here. Um, temple. Thank you. You didn't say it, but I said it there. A temple to uh, to the foreign gods. And that was where the Romans actually had some of their false temples set up there. And so with Pergamos there, where it says where Satan's throne is, the people that received this letter during the time of John would probably sit there and nod their head, said, yeah, I can see Satan's throne. It's right out my window. Pergamos had a lot of actual false temples and false deities that were in it. So it's probably an actual reference there to some of those false temples that were literally there. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay, next one. Thyatira. Verse 18, the angel of the church in Thyatira, write These things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, they're more than the, they're last or more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say unto the rest in Thyatira, As many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast with what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a the rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the powder's vessels as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let I'm here, what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Thyatira. Well, what you see here in verse 18 is you see judgment. We talked about this in our study in Revelation 1. When you see the eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, that represents judgment, fire, piercing eyes that can see. Fine brass makes you think back to the um, tabernacle. We had the bronze laver and the bronze altar there in front of there that would represent judgment. And this is also shown, too, in verse 23. Look at this where it says, And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Jesus is saying, I can see what's going on. I can see the judgment. Now, a verse that's kind of a little scary to hear, but Matthew 10, 26, Jesus comes out and says, Everything that is hidden will be revealed. Matthew 10, 26, everything that's hidden will be revealed. Now, think about that for a second. Would you really want everything that's hidden in your life to be revealed? Well, see, that's what it's talking about here in Thyatira. He's got piercing eyes that can see. So often we think we got away with something or no one saw. My goodness, we didn't. We didn't at all. Now, the thing that comes up with this by me making that comment of things that are hidden that will be revealed, if that makes you nervous, my my next follow-up question to yourself and to myself is, if I'm so worried about those things being revealed, why am I still doing them? Why am I still thinking those thoughts? Why am I still hiding those actions? If I know those things are not good... I should probably just stop. Problem is we hear that and say, well, that's too easy. You know, I really haven't found the Bible to be too difficult. (laughs) It really keeps it pretty simple. If I know the piercing eyes of Christ, see it. If I know the fine brass of judgment, will see it. And if I know verse 23, I will give to each one of you according to your works. And if I know Matthew 10:26 says whatever is hidden will be revealed, by golly, I should probably just stop and say, Lord, I don't want to do those things anymore. God help me. God help me to be the man of God privately that I am publicly. That's all the Lord wants of us is just let's serve him. See, and this is what happened in Thyatira. Their outside appearance It was pretty good. Look here once again at verse 19. Wouldn't you just like to sit and hear Jesus say this about you, James? I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. And as for the works, the last are more than the first. Now let's just stop right there, Lord. He goes, I know you're out there working. Now what are works? The outside appearance of something good. He has the outside appearance of something good. But the problem is inside, verse 20 on, there's immorality. Is this not a picture of the church today? On the outside, we really look pretty good. But when you really start peeling away the layers, there's a lot of immorality. The inside is covered in evil. So the correction is, God says, I need to come judge. Now this Jezebel, was she an actual woman that was alive during that time? It's quite possible. She literally was a prophetess, a false prophetess that was preaching this sexual immorality. Or it could have been just a reference to a Jezebel. We know Jezebel from the Old Testament was the most wicked of all women. And so maybe it was just this uh, false doctrine that was going around. Now, the problem is we have a tendency to look at these passages and we only focus on verse 23. I will kill her children with death. That's a nice way to look at Jesus. I will kill her children with death. Now, a couple of things on that. My personal opinion, so take it or leave it, very wary. In fact, I heard a pastor read teach recently. He goes, if you'd open your Bible to the book of opinions. So here's my quotation from the book of opinions. I think this is talking more of a spiritual realm. When it talks about killing her children with death, I don't think it's actually talking about her little kids. I think it's talking about her followers. I think it's talking about the people that are following this false prophet, this false woman. And so they are her children in the faith in a bad way, if you will. And God is basically saying, if you want to go out there and live that life, verse 22, actions have consequences. See now this is what happens in the world today. We do something we shouldn't do then it's not our fault. I've shared with this with you many times. I've gone and done a lot of visits to people in jail and in prison. And the vast, vast majority of them, it's never their fault. Actions have consequences. Well, sometimes we don't want to admit that our actions have consequences. And this is what God is trying to say right here. I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her in great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So we see there and say, well, that's not fair. God's going to cast them into the sickbed. Does that mean physical sickbed? It could. Does that mean spiritual sickbed? It could. I don't know. I've seen a lot of people that are spiritually sick by their own consequences and actions. I've seen a lot of people that are physically sick. By their own consequences and actions. They've led a lifestyle of abuse to their body and then they wonder why their body gives up. There's consequences to our actions. I don't say this to be judgmental. I don't say this to be mean. I say this as a fact. This is what happens. But the problem is we ignore, look, did you see verse 21? I gave her time to repent. Verse 22, unless they repent of their deeds. How many times have you heard us say this? In judgment, there's always grace. God is saying, I'm giving this false teaching, this false theology here, time to repent and make a change. They're choosing not to. So since they choose not to, judgment comes on them. Years ago, I had a situation where a, a guy called me up, and he had worked at this place, and he worked at this place for a really, really, really long time. He called me up, and they fired me today. They fired you today? Yeah, they fired me today. Well, why did they fire you? I have no idea. Just out of the blue, they fired me. Now, I'm not smart, but I'm not dumb. And I started thinking, okay, they just don't fire people out of the blue. okay. They just fired you out of the blue for no reason. Yeah, they fired me out of the blue for no reason. So we went on and on and on. Finally find out later on the reason they fired him out of the blue for no reason, he had illegal drugs with him. Well, I think that's a reason. But yet, he was going around telling people he got fired for no reason. Now, maybe to him it was no reason, but the people that he worked with, that was a pretty good reason to let him go. See, right here, God is saying, repent, repent. Well, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. I want to go out and live the lifestyle I want to live. If that means sexual morality, that means sexual morality. Well, if you sleep around, you're going to get yourself into trouble, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Well, I can go out and abuse my body with whatever I want, whatever drugs and alcohol I want. I don't care. There's no consequences. Well, there will be consequences to that. If we go out and live a lifestyle like that, we will be cast into a sickbed, spiritually and probably physically and emotionally. That's why God says in verse 21, repent. That's why God says in verse 22, repent. He says repent, change. Make a difference here because this is not the direction that you want to go. These consequences have actions. You know, God has given us free will, which is both a blessing and a curse. And God says in that free will, I allow yourself to get yourselves in trouble because that you will hopefully learn from your consequences and your actions. Some of us do, some of us don't. Well, church at Fire Thyatira here, some of them weren't learning from their consequences. They weren't learning at all. But to the blessing of those that did follow, Well, verse 26, he who overcomes, if you remember looking at your sheets there, we go back to the first church in Ephesus. He is one who that overcomes is one that's born again and saved. You can see that from 1 John 5, 5. So one that's overcome is one that's saved, and they're faithful to the end. Faithful to the end. This is the thing about Christianity is that word endurance, staying strong, staying focused. A lot of us want to give up. Let's be all honest. All of us at one time or another in our Christian walk have just wanted to give up and said, This isn't worth it, Lord. God says, If you're faithful to the end, you will be rewarded. And what will they be rewarded with? Verse 27 You get to rule and reign with Christ. That's pretty cool. During the millennial reign of Christ, which we'll get to in Revelation chapter 20, we get to reign with Jesus. How cool is that? That's one of the rewards of enduring. And also, one of the other rewards that you see here at the end is you get this blessing of the morning star. Morning star, verse 28. Well, the morning star, according to Revelation 22:16, is Jesus himself. If you stop and think about it, what else do you need other than Christ? Now, the problem is we all know this, we all say this, but do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the only thing I need is the morning star? Have you ever had something where you just waited so expectantly for that gift, for that present, and then when you get that gift and present, it's just utter disappointment because you really thought it was going to be something better than that? I think that's the way it is with Christianity sometimes. We, we talk up Christianity. You know, come to Jesus and you'll be saved and be the most amazing thing. Well, what's the most amazing thing you get? Well, the most amazing thing you get in Christianity is Jesus. That's all. Just Jesus. See, don't you think Thyatira? You know what you get? You get the morning star. You get Jesus. That's all. What else do you need? I mean, if you really believe that that's all you need is Christ, then that's all you need. Because Christ is everything. He is all that we need. Now, I don't know if you believe that or not, but verse 29, he was at ear, let him hear. That's what John is trying to tell us. All that we need is Jesus. And the church at Thyatira, that's what they needed. They needed Christ. So the church at Thyatira is a church that had allowed the false teaching, the false sexual morality to come in. And they looked good on the outside, outside appearance of good. Their works were good, but an inside they were covered in evil. Like I said, sometimes we have to stop and look at ourselves and say, "Lord, is that me?" The correction that was coming, there was judgment, but don't forget in judgment, twice God says, "Repent, repent." There's a chance to make it right. Our actions have consequences, but if we endure to the end, we get to rule and reign with Christ and we get the blessing of the morning star. So, there you go there with the church of Thyatira. So, That's what we got here for tonight. It's uh, after 8 o'clock, so we're going to go ahead and close it up, and we'll keep studying through the seven churches here. And I think I told you this last week, and I do truly mean it. We will pick up the pace here. I do mean that. But it's nice to be able to hit these churches hard because there's so much truth in them and so much application in them too. Does anybody have any final questions, comments, complaints here about uh, Thyatira or Pergamos? Okay. If not, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here. And Lord... Help us. Help us to learn from Pergamos, Lord. Some of us may be working where Satan dwells. Some of us may be living where Satan dwells. Strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen us to stay there and be a light and a witness, Lord, in all that we do and say. Lord, Thyatira, we have the good outside works. Lord, we want to serve you with everything we can. But, Lord, we don't want our inside to be evil. Lord, truly clean us. Lord, cleanse us. We come to you in confession and repentance. Lord, to change those things that need to be changed, to work out those things that need to be worked out. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to strengthen those areas that are weak, to truly serve you and love you with everything we have. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. A quick reminder, if we can have some people help load up uh, chairs and tables in the back, Rich is back there. He'll point you in the right direction. you guys have a good week and God bless.